When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 31, The Witching Hour. Today's proverb is unattributed. I'll read it twice. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Once more, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle is not a word people often use anymore. Probably because we don't believe idleness is a problem. Or maybe because we don't believe idleness is real. We don't believe idleness is a problem because if you look up the word idle in a dictionary, the definition sounds a good bit like the modern conception of leisure or rest, which is doing nothing or doing nothing profitable. Now, we don't believe in idleness. I don't know that we believe in the devil really either. And when I say that, I don't mean atheists don't believe in the devil. I mean, there's a lot of Christians who don't believe in the devil, really. They don't believe that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And when you hear the proverb, idle hands are the devil's workshop, we interpret it to mean You need to be doing something. That's it. Idle hands of the devil's workshop is a sort of pious way of saying, if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. 
it's just a thing that stuffy adults say. It's a thing that shift managers say to people working on minimum wage. That's kind of the way that we understand this proverb. If you're on the clock, you need to be doing something profitable. Now, it would be tedious to describe, once again, the difference between a traditional understanding of leisure and what it means to people now. So I don't want to I don't want the whole show to be about that. I think that classical educators over the last 15 years have done a lot of good work, competent work in attempting to rehabilitate the concept of leisure. And in the revitalization of leisure as a meaningful thing, you can't not gain some understanding of what idleness is, you know, in the process. Idleness is the opposite of leisure. Leisure is a word which describes activities, though. If there was one way of summarizing all that classical educators and classical theorists and intellectuals have done for the concept of leisure over the last 10 or 15 years, I would say it's that. It's restoring this concept of leisure as an activity. And in that way, leisure time is not an absurd turn of phrase, but the expression leisure time might often obscure the truth more than it reveals it. Because there's a sense in which there's no such thing as leisure time. Um, by which I mean, some people conceive of leisure time a bit like a, a kind of time zone. Like leisure time is like, you know, Eastern Standard Time. Or leisure time is like Christmas break. Uh, when school gets out for Christmas break, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're on, you're on Christmas break. And if you live in Virginia, you live in Eastern Standard Time, no matter what you're doing. If you're working, if you're um, watching Transformers, if you're protesting or rioting, if you're going to church, everything that happens in Virginia is done on Eastern Standard Time. Leisure time's not like that, though. Leisure time... The Sabbath is leisure time, but leisure time is as leisure time does, um, to risk being a bit cliche. There are leisure activities, and those are activities which benefit the soul, but there's no leisure time that necessarily benefits the soul, regardless of what's done in it. Leisure time cannot set apart all that takes place therein as leisure. Leisure is a kind of activity. It's an activity that benefits the soul. And that's what leisure is. Leisure is all those activities which don't keep the body alive, but keep the soul alive. Now, the word idle simply means nothing to do. Now, I should add as a sort of caveat on here, that meditation, contemplation, that's a leisure activity. Meditation is not easy. 
training your mind on one certain subject for a long period of time is very difficult. Most people can't do it. And if that seems absurd, give yourself some subject. Like meditate on the Holy Spirit for 10 minutes. Set an alarm. And when the alarm goes off, see what you're thinking about. You're probably going to be thinking about, you know, the Wu-Tang Clan by the point the 10-minute mark hits in your contemplation of the Holy Spirit. It's hard to meditate. It's an, it's an activity. It's a mental activity. But the term mental activity is not self-contradictory, I suppose. There's no direct connection between labor, which is what a man does to stay alive, and strenuous activity. Neither really is there a direct connection between leisure and a lack of strenuous activity. And I say that because standing in church for three hours is a leisure activity. Going on a pilgrimage to Damascus, to Jerusalem, is a leisure activity. Back in the Middle Ages, if you were to walk 20 miles to a quarry and um, purchase a 200-pound stone and transport it another 10 miles to the building site of a cathedral, that could be back-breaking labor. That's a leisure activity, though. It does not help keep you alive. As for the benefit of your soul. No one pays you to do it. You're going to be more dead by the end of it, physically speaking, than you would be if you'd stayed home and worked. But it's still a leisure activity. It's not something you're compelled to do to stay alive. Now, I'd like to... I'd like to make a claim at this point about idleness that I'm going to spend a good portion of the rest of the show defending is probably too much. Explaining is not really enough. I'm going I'm to say something about idleness that can't be taken as an absolute. But, I mean, we're talking about Proverbs. There are no absolutes in Proverbs. I want to say that idleness is really more of a young man's problem than an old man's problem. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that young men are more prone to the work of the devil than old men. I don't believe that at all. I believe Dante. I believe that sins of old age are far more grievous than the sins which are typical of youth. The problem with the world is not all the junior and senior boys out there. <laughs> Those are not the people who are making the world an awful place to be. I, mean, when it, I think when it comes down to it, the people that make the world a sort of awful place to be are probably more the people in their 50s and 60s than people who are 19 and 20. The sins of old age are not 
induced by idleness. The sins of old age are induced by malice and bitterness and cynicism and nihilism. This is what Dante says, at least. And Dante says that there are sins which are typical of certain ages of, of a man, certain stages of human life. The sins of youth tend to be immoderate desires for good things, especially physical pleasure. Now, the reason why the sins of old age are worse than the sins of youth is that by the time you're an old man, your body is less receptive to physical pleasure, which means the evil you enjoy is enjoyed in your soul. There is a right and wrong way to enjoy physical pleasure, but there's no right way to enjoy malice. And so sins of malice, which are really more typical of old men and women, are far worse. They indicate a, a more pronounced and brazen turning away from God. Now, while I say that idleness is really sort of a young man's problem, I will admit that on June 17th, I will turn 39. And I still suffer the temptations of youth. I still suffer the temptations of idleness. And I think a good part of that is job hazard. I'm not excusing all the times that I've caved to the temptations of idleness, the temptations of youth. But I have observed myself often enough to know that as someone whose life follows the school year, I am always at my worst in the summer. I've said this many times before. I'm a teacher, which means that in a 365-day school year, I only go to work about 200 days, maybe a little bit less, just over 50% of the year is spent working. And I stay busy, sort of. I mean, I, every year I blog about 100,000 words. And a lot of those words are going on in all the off hours of the summer and the weekend and so forth. Summer is still the worst time for me, though. I'm glad when it starts, and I'm even more glad when summer is over. I've told my students this before. I can't get anyone to go along with me on this. I can't get any of my students to go along with me on this, which probably means it's a fantastic idea. I would rather have a six-week summer and a six-week break between Thanksgiving and Theophany on January 6th than a 12-week summer. I can't do much during the summer after about I'm halfway through with it. Six weeks into the summer, I'm out of ideas. I'm done with fun projects to do with my kids. I'm sick of it. And, I mean, if you've ever been dying to go home when you're at work. I mean, whether you're a teacher, I mean, no matter what kind of job you had, if you've worked food service 
or you've worked, I don't know, at a supermarket or a department store, you know what it feels like to have that sort of burning desire to get out of here. Like a sort of, you know, growing allergic reaction to your workplace. I don't mean you want to quit your job. I just mean you want to not be, you've got to not be here today. That's often the way that I feel for like the last four weeks of summer. This perpetual vexation to be done with this part of the year. Because I'm not at my best, not even close. Now, I will say that as somebody who's had this problem many years, I've read a lot of very fine advice about the necessity of having a schedule and keeping a schedule. But I will say that so far as the life of a teacher is concerned over the course of summer, Modern people love to talk about how necessary it is to have a schedule and to make a schedule for yourself. The thing is, there is a profound difference between a schedule which emerges slowly and naturally and which is necessary to the smooth operation of your life. And when I say smooth operation of your life, I mean so far as health and wealth are concerned, a certain schedule guides the course of your day. You slowly sink into it. There's a difference between that kind of schedule and the kind of schedule you write for yourself. Because when the summer starts, everybody knows how all the problems that emerge from idleness. And they, everyone writes a schedule for themselves. And you feel so empowered when you write your schedule. And you create these little time blocks and... You create this list of proposals of things that you're going to do, you know, the library and these documentaries, and I'm going to go for a walk at this point in the day, and, and so on and so forth. I'm not saying that that's a bad idea. I am saying that they almost never work. These almost never work for me. I make a schedule, I keep it for four days, and then I'm done with it. Now, I think I know why I don't keep a schedule. Part of me is is skeptical, maybe even cynical, about schedules that people create for themselves. I'm not entirely sure a schedule that you create for yourself is actually a schedule. I think it's something else. I mean, if we're thinking of the normative schedules that typically guide your life over the course of a school year, you didn't decide on any of that. That's why it's so easy to keep. It's because you have to do it. I mean, as a school teacher, I have to get up and be to work by 7.30. That's a schedule. I have to let my first period out at you know 8.55 or 9.05. It's not up to me. We go to lunch at a certain point in the day. We go home at a certain point in the day. That's the schedule. I didn't design it. There are certain things from class to class that are schedules of my own making, but but the kind of you know skeletal structure of the day 
is not something I dreamed up, which means that there's a kind of naturalness to it. If you didn't decide on it, it's natural. That's the difference between the schedules that you keep you know, nine months out of the year versus the nifty little schedules that you dream up, that I dream up for myself over the summer. It's astoundingly difficult to keep those schedules. Now, what I mean, and, and I haven't actually said, why is it so hard to keep those schedules? Well, they're not natural. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're hard to keep. I mean, you could fabricate something. You could create something. You could have a sort of supernatural schedule. But I do a little thought experiment. Suppose that you have, I'm going to take, for example, two men. Two men both acquire jobs. These are not men who know each other. Two separate cases. Two men acquire jobs, let's say. And the jobs that they get only require that they work for six hours a day. And the six hours that they work can be done wherever they like. They work from home. And whenever they like, provided that all six hours are finished before stroke of midnight. Now, let's say these two men both get these jobs on the same day. And let's say that up until this point in these men's lives, they have had jobs that require them to be to work at 8 o'clock, go home at 4 or 4.30, an hour-long lunch break that occurs at the same point every day, but that they both acquire these jobs where they have to work for six hours a day, and those six hours can be put in at any point before midnight. Let's see. Both of these men get this job on the same day, two years after getting these jobs. Let's say both of these men have put on weight, a lot of weight. They both acknowledge to themselves and their doctors that they drink too much and that they waste too much money. They look at all the things that they spend money on at the end of the month. They buy way too much food from restaurants. They spend way too much money on entertainment. Two years into this job, the six-hour-a-day job, both of these men are kind of falling apart. Now, let's say that they both also go to Barnes & Noble to browse one day, and they both see this lately published, very fashionable book about time management. I swear, time management books are practically the new diet books. <laughs> Fad diet books have been a thing for 50 years. I think we're, we're probably about to enter the era where time, management's, time management books are like the new diet book, I mean, like the keto time management book, the South Beach time management book. I mean, there's so many different theories of time management out there. They both buy the same fashionable time management book. And, of course, the time management book tells them what they already know, which is you need to live on a schedule. And part of the reason why these two guys are putting on weight and spending too much money and drinking too much, blood pressure going up, cholesterol going up, is because they don't have a schedule. And so their time is sort of spent arbitrarily. They're not getting much in return for their time. And because they're not getting much in return for their time, they're really 
veering too much towards sensual pleasure, that sensual pleasure is attempting to make up for, or they're trying to use sensual pleasure to make up for the meaninglessness of their lives. And when I say meaningless, I just mean arbitrary, without a schedule, without purpose, without some kind of higher spiritual value. So they both buy this time management book. And they read, you need a schedule. And when they, you know, when they hear that they need a schedule, neither of these men disputes this point. So for the first time in two years, both of these men decide that they're going to start setting an alarm in the morning. Now, here's the, the reason why I propose this hypothetical story is to ask this hypothetical question at this point. Two men, now knowing nothing else about these two men, apart, other than they're in the exact same miserable pattern of life. I want to say that one of these men decides that he's going to set his alarm for 8.30 in the morning. And the other man decides he's going to set his alarm for 5.30 in the morning. Now, knowing nothing else about these guys, all other things are equal. Which of them do you suppose is more likely to stick with their schedule? Now, this is sort of a theological question. Because a lot of people, a lot of Americans want the right answer to be, well, the guy who set his alarm for 830 is going to do better. Now, if you're laughing at that suggestion, if you're laughing at the suggestion that most, I'm going to say most Christians want 830 to be the right answer to that question. Oh, the guy who said 830 is more likely to be successful. If you're laughing at that, you should walk a mile in my shoes. A lot of people want 830 to be the right answer because it's less ambitious and because it makes them feel less guilty. The kind of people who worry about works righteousness and the kind of people who complain that Catholics are trying to earn their way to heaven, they want 830 to be right. They want that guy to be more successful. And the argument is something like, well, the guy setting his alarm for 5.30 is making his life unnecessarily difficult. If he doesn't need to get up at 5.30, then don't. Who are you trying to impress? God doesn't care if you get up at 5.30 or 8.30. 5.30, kind of an ascetic. You skipping breakfast too? Skipping lunch? Fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays? Why 5.30? The people who want the 8.30 guy to do better want to say the 5.30 guy thinks too highly of himself. They're both paying the bills. The guy who sets his alarm for 5.30 is just too ambitious, thinks too highly of himself. But I want to say the guy who sets his alarm at 5.30 is more likely to stick with his schedule. And I want to say he's more likely to stick with his schedule because he understands something about discipline that the 830 guy doesn't. And that's the discipline is unpleasant. <laughs> no discipline is pleasant at the time, quoth the apostle. If you want to learn discipline by way of a schedule, 
the schedule's got to be unpleasant. And nobody sets an, I mean, as somebody who's set a schedule for himself over the summer many times, I've never set a difficult schedule for myself, which is why I don't keep it. And I don't set a difficult schedule for myself because I'm lazy. I know that a schedule could be helpful, but it's got to be a difficult schedule. Idle people want to avoid unpleasant things. They want to avoid work, leisure work or labor work. They want to avoid both. The devil isn't looking for people who don't like to work. He's looking for people who don't work. And the devil isn't looking for people who don't like to tithe. He's looking for people who don't tithe. If you don't like to tithe, welcome to the club. (laughs) God loves a cheerful giver. He'll take a reluctant one, though. Idleness, when I say that idleness is more of a young man's problem, without also meaning that young people are more wicked than old people. When I say idleness is a young person's problem, I mean young people have fewer responsibilities than old people, generally speaking. And of course, I mean, you could have somebody who you know, marries and has kids by the age of 22, and somebody who's not married by the age of 40 and can you know, stay up till 2 in the morning every night. But one of the reasons why idleness isn't a problem for older people is you just got too much to do. I'm far less idle when I've got too much to do. I need a little pressure. I need a little stress to keep me thinking straight. Modern Americans just freak out at stress, though. Everything's a problem of stress. What we need is more idleness. (laughs) Idleness is the solution to stress. When I was younger, my father used to say to me, pretty much nothing you're up doing after midnight is worth doing. I think that young people are often up way later. If there's an idle time of life, there's also an idle time of day. Anything which is true over the course of a human life is true at a different time of day as well. Because old age is a kind of evening. Joy comes in the morning. Children are happier people than adults. And of course, when I was a teenager and my father would tell me this, I would like to complain. It's possible to be up late doing good things. Yeah, it's possible. But when I consider my whole life, if I could take back everything I've ever done between midnight and six in the morning, I would be far better off today. I'd be 30 pounds lighter. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be capable of jogging five miles without getting out of breath. I'd have written... Six books as opposed to three. 
<laughs> and it's true if I was to take back everything that I've ever done between midnight and six. There are a few very important and good conversations I've had with friends that I would lose. And I'd lose a few things that I've written as well. But I tend to think that I would have gotten back better usage of my time after six and before midnight. That's the idle point of the day, though. You're up that late. What good thing did you not accomplish during the day that you're up that late doing? What couldn't you get done over the course of the day that you've got to do now? Well, some people stay up late working. I bet less than 1% of all the human hours, the human waking hours between 12 and 6 are spent working. That's the idle time of day. That's the time when you know that nature wants you to go to sleep, but you don't want to obey nature. You want to defy nature. Which means you're either going to do something unnatural or supernatural. And pretty much nobody's up after midnight praying or reading the Bible. I mean, unless you're a monk. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.